What We Consume. Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to What We Consume, a show about all the things we put into our minds and bodies. I'm your host, King Hagathor, and with me as always is... Hey, it's me, Kevin. I'm here, I'm ready to podcast, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but there was somebody very late for the podcast today. I wonder who it was. It, it was me. Yeah. It was supposed to be up. It was supposed it. to be up for them to guess if it was me or them or you. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, last week we talked about the war on Christmas. This week we're going to be talking about a time of peace during Christmas, during World War One. So we covered some aspects of the lead up to World War One during our history of airplanes episode. So I'll, I'm gonna try to keep this brief, but we're gonna kind of sum it up again. Early 1900s saw a lot of colonial expansion with empires rising and falling during the time. Spain and the Ottoman Empire were losing territories they had controlled for centuries, while the United States and Japan were gobbling up territories in the Pacific. Meanwhile, new nations were industrializing and new tech was was preparing to revolutionize the way wars were fought. Japan's defeat of the Russian ground forces at Mukden, followed by the decisive naval victory at the Battle of Tsushima, forced the Russian Empire to sue for peace and ended the Second Sino-Japanese War, and shocked the world as it was the first major military victory of the modern era in which an Asian power defeated a European one. Because of this war, suddenly Japan was recognized not as like a nuisance or just another land to be conquered, but as a threat and a rival. A new world power. Yeah. This led to the first Russian Revolution in 1905, which we've kind of covered before, but most significantly caused massive civil unrest, a weakening of, of the Tsar and the noble class, and laid the groundwork for the Bolshevik Revolution that would put an end to the Romanovs and Russia's participation in World War One. Russia's domestic changes spooked Germany, concerned that the Tsar's Tsar's failure in the east would turn his eye westward for a last effort at expanding the Russian Empire. In response, Germany and Austria-Hungary began arming up, hoping their superior engineering and planning would keep them safe from Russia's superior numbers. They already got so much land at that point, why do they need more? It's just a lot to control. It's just, you know, can't you just be happy with what you got? Uh, By this point in time, the Romanovs had controlled Russia for a couple hundred years, and, like, every king marked their success as a ruler by expanding their territory. Nicholas II had not really been able to gain any land, which is why... He was first so focused in the east, in Manchuria, and then eventually, uh, when that failed, he started looking west. He could have just bought a nice little plot in, like, Finland or something, saying it's a vacation home, and then he, he marks a stamp that it's by, oh, this is on Russia control now, and then he's, he, you know, he conquered something. Nobody would know. They could just propaganda it. Yeah, it turns out, um... Kings kind of think they're above that. So Germany and Austria-Hungary arming up, France saw Germany's shift in production and similarly began arming up. 
The Balkan states and Italy uh, followed suit, creating an arms race all over Europe. Also, the Balkan Wars saw the combined forces of Greece, Serbia, Montenegro, and their allies defeat the supposedly superior Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire had been in decline for a while, but the defeat in the Balkan Wars stripped the Ottoman Empire of all their European holdings west of the Maritz, yeah, Maritza River, and was a key factor in the empire's collapse shortly after. The Balkan Wars also threatened to kick off World War One a couple years earlier than it actually started, as allies were called to arms and the fighting edged ever closer to other nations' borders. The First Balkan War was also where the Bulgarian army first used a plane to drop bombs on the Ottoman Empire. Although prior to that, Italian pilot, I think it's Giulio Gavotti, uh, he had dropped a couple of grenades on an Ottoman position on November 1st, 1911. So those were the first two instances of planes used to drop bombs. Yeah. I know this has nothing to do with the, the planes dropping bombs, but the, because it, it was in the episode from us, the name Giuseppe has been stuck in my head for like the last week for some reason. It's just like... Giuseppe. Yeah, I think that's like a clown or a mom or something or one of those guys, right? Yeah. Ah, oh, shit. Giuseppe was... Oh, uh, Giuseppe was the father of... Um... Oh, fuck, no, I can't think of it. Uh, he, he, he was the father of... Um... Joseph uh, Gavaldi. Yeah. Is he the guy who, like, put him in a cage and swung him around like a monkey? He put him on a chain and swung him around like a monkey, yeah. and then separately he also put people in cages. Yeah, for some reason his name has been stuck in my head. Like, I, It's not one you hear very often. It kind of sticks around. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's just there. But anyway, back to the topic. Call back to episode three. So with the Ottoman Empire pushed back, the Balkans now had to also face other imperialist mindsets in Europe. Austria-Hungary was eyeing Serbia in particular to expand their uh, empire. Because they were, like, uh, if you look at that map I sent you, like, Austria-Hungary, like, didn't really have a lot of other options to expand. Germany to the north and the west was their ally. Russia to the east was just too powerful to really f for Austria-Hungary to take on. So, like, that was really their only option. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're playing Risk and you uh, you get beat up real bad and all the whole, all the other players are around you about to take you out and you just, you know, you kind of have to pick one and hope you get lucky, hope you, you roll a, a bigger number. Yeah, something like that. Austria-Hungary was allied with Germany, and this alliance, along with Italy, was known as the Triple Alliance. It was later known as the Central Powers once the Kingdom of Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire joined them once World War I kicked off. Serbia, on the other hand, was allied with Russia, who was allied with France and Britain, and Britain, France, and Russia were known as the Triple Entente. So those are the two main alliances leading up to World War I. So basically, Britain, France, and Russia are like surrounding the other one. Yeah. It's an interesting 
dynamic how they picked. They were like, hey, they're going to take us over if we don't uh, ally. And then they were, then all these other ones were like, hey, let's take these other people over. Let's ally together. We'll each get a piece of the pie. Yeah, so that triple entente would then later be expanded when Italy joined it and Japan, and eventually it would be known as the quintuple entente. Most of the time, people just think that's considered the uh, alliance because those are the allies during World War One. By allies, it's because we Americans ended up joining that one. Yeah, the good yeah. one. Because Americans. Yeah, something like that. The good one. We won. Yeah, so uh, during the war, more nations would join both sides, but those are roughly the alliances leading up to the summer of 1914. During the summer, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir presumptive to the Emperor of Austria, was assassinated by Gavrio Princip, who wanted, like, who assassinated him because he wanted a free bosnia from austrian rule oftentimes things get simplified into just saying the assassination kicked off the first world war but as you can see there was a lot of other factors uh and many saw the fighting as inevitable do you have a question no i'm just waiting Uh, i thought you were gonna ask me something no you had your mouth open so i wasn't sure if you were yawning or if you were like about to ask something i don't know what i was doing Okay, um, so what the assassination did kick off was the July crisis and also a lot of anti-Serbian riots in Austria-Hungary. The July crisis was a series of diplomatic and military meetings and escalations that was Europe's essentially last chance to navigate away from war. But the diplomatic negotiations broke down after Austria delivered an ultimatum of 10 demands that were intentionally unacceptable to provoke hostilities to give them an excuse to invade. Bastards. Yeah, so because of this, Serbia mobilized their army on July 25th, 1914. Serbia did try to accommodate them. They accepted most of the demands, but one of them that they just could not accept was Austria's demand that Serbia allow quote-unquote, representatives of the Austro-Hungarian government into the country for the purpose of, quote-unquote, suppression of subversive movements. Like, hey, let us invade your country and attack your citizens, or we'll invade your country and attack your citizens. Like... They were... They, they, they were you said they were sending that to Serbia? Or Serbia? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's... That, that's like... Yeah, like you said earlier, they just wanted to fight. They did. They didn't care. Yeah, yeah. The, this was just so that Serbia would like cancel the deal or and like would mobilize their forces because they knew a fight was coming. But in doing so, Austria-Hungary got what they wanted because it meant they like it. It gave them. A pretty flimsy excuse, but an excuse nonetheless to invade. So they declared war and began shelling Belgrade on July 28, 1914. With that, Russia had no choice but to honor their obligation to their ally Serbia and mobilized on July 30th. Germany sent a note to the Russian government on July 31st that they must, quote, cease all war measures against Germany and Austria-Hungary 
within 12 hours. Germany then sent a message to France demanding they remain neutral, but France refused. They ordered a general mobilization of their armies, but waited to actually declare war. So they were like, well, fight's coming, so everyone get armed up, but they were like, we're not going to call, like, we're not going to declare war just yet. Like, we're going to wait and see how things play out a little bit. On the 29th of July, the British cabinet had reviewed its 1839 Treaty of London, their treaty with Belgium, and decided narrowly that they were not obligated to oppose an invasion of Belgium. So, like, the treaty said that they had to remain neutral with Belgium, they had no plans to mess with that, but it didn't say they had to, like, that they, like, needed to defend Belgium if Belgium's neutrality was threatened by someone else. So they were just preparing ahead because I did Germany say that they were going to attack Belgium? I thought they were going to attack France, or they that they asked France to be neutral. Uh, Germany asked France to be neutral. Belgium was just planning on being neutral. Britain was like, "This fight's probably going to spill into Belgium." So, well, like, they were just do we ha- do we have to like? fight back if Belgium gets invaded or can we just like sit on our aisle and watch it play out so they were just preparing like getting ready okay okay yeah but but they also because foreign policy is confusing to keep track of yeah. all these treaties and things that you have to do in case that you've made alliances with for yeah. man so, so uh, so Britain, Britain did also have their alliance with France, and they were committed to supporting them. So if Belgium got invaded, they wouldn't necessarily lift a finger. But but if France got invaded, they would be forced to join in. So they sent a message to both France and Germany asking them to respect Belgian neutrality. France pledged, France pledged to do so. Germany did not respond. So on August 1st, Germany's demand that Russia stand down expired, meaning Germany and Russia were now officially at war. And because of Russia's alliance with France, it was only a matter of time before that war was official as well. Britain wished to remain neutral, but as soon as France was pulled into it, peace was really no longer an option for Britain. Germany also expected it would be a war on two fronts, France on their western side and Russia on their eastern side. And that was something they absolutely did not want. Because Germany could only field about three-fifths of the number of troops they expected that France and Russia's combined effort would put into the fight, meaning a war of attrition was almost certainly going to go against them in the long run. So they had a plan to mitigate that, but early on the Central Powers had a bit of a miscommunication. Germany aimed most of its forces to the west, hoping to, like... not completely wipe out France, but, like, do so much damage to them so quickly that they would have to sue for peace and, like, would just, like, take them out of the war immediately. Then they could turn back to the east and help Austria-Hungary with the Russians. Germany believed Austria-Hungary would focus most of their forces against Russia as they posed much more of a threat than Serbia. Austria-Hungary, on the other hand, was salivating for Serbia. They planned to sweep Serbia while 
Germany clashed with Russia and defended Austria-Hungary's northern border. They both have their two different ideas of how this, like, war is going to kick off. Uh, Once this air was realized, Austria-Hungary was forced to split their forces between Russia and Serbia. So, Austria-Hungary's forces clashed with the Serbians on August 12th at the Battle of Kerr and Kalubara. Probably butchering those names. Austria forces were repulsed for the next two weeks, and they suffered heavy losses, meaning any hope of a swift sweep of the nation was gone, and they would have to keep their forces divided between Russia and Serbia for probably the duration of the war. This key loss uh, for... or actually both of them, um, these lo- these key early losses for Austria would be considered one of the major upsets of the 20th century. Because it was just not expected that Serbia could survive. But because the forces, like uh, the Austrian-Hungary forces were divided between keeping Russia at bay and attacking Serbia, they couldn't put their full weight into the war. So it wasn't just tactically dis- disadvantageous it was also humiliating to not be able to dominate the much smaller country of serbia germany on the other hand had mobilized about 80 percent of its forces on the western front leaving only 20 percent on the east to keep russia from gaining too much ground for the moment germany's official plan was called the aufmarsch west but was more commonly called the schlieffen plan after its initial designer Count Alfred von Schlieffen. Von Schlieffen had designed the plan when he was head of German uh, general staff from 1891 to 1906. The main crux of their plan was to meet France on the southern half, where the Germany and France border each other. Um, Like where Switzerland is? What? Like where Switzerland is? No, just, just like that part... Where France and Germany actually touch border to border. Yeah, shouldn't that be? Oh, oh, you're just talking about the like, like the whole like line. above above yeah, Switzerland, yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So uh, their main plan was to keep most of the fighting there, keep France's forces focused on that, and at the same time invade Belgium and the Netherlands in the north, cross into the cross into France north of their defenses, encircle Paris, and hit the French on the border in the back, forcing them south against the Mediterranean Sea. Alfred von Schlieffen had stepped down in 1906 and died in 1913, so he never actually saw his plan put into action. His replacement was Helmuth von Moltke the Younger, who tweaked the plan to suit the changes in tech and manpower, which had occurred in the eight or so years since the initial design. So they've been planning that for a long time. Yeah, well, um, they'd essentially been planning something since um, the Franco-Prussian War, um, which was, I think, in the late 1800s. But for a long time, they knew, like, if they ever get into a war like that again, they're going to have France on the west and Russia on the east. So, like, they needed to do something to keep it from being a war on two fronts von moltke uh the younger he uh he tweaked the design a bit he they decided not to invade the netherlands at all 
hoping to keep it neutral and open as a trade source if they became blockaded. But they still planned to invade Belgium, which would violate its neutrality and would risk bringing Britain into the war. Although, like, they're planning on fighting France, so Britain's Are pretty much going to come regardless. Yeah. Maybe because, like, if they attacked Belgium and opened that up, it's just, like, another area that they would be fighting from, so it would spread their forces out even more. Yeah, but also, like, they wanted to keep the Netherlands neutral, so, like, they could, like, still trade with them, and, like, the Netherlands being neutral could trade with everyone, so they could still get supplies that they wouldn't be able to get if, you know, like, if it was officially under German control. Yeah. So the German army marched into Belgium on August 4th, 1914. The first battle of World War I was at the city of Liege, which was a railway hub city that was heavily fortified. Some considered it the most heavily fortified spot in Europe. The Schlieffen plan relied extensively on capturing the railway system and using it to send troops, equipment, and supplies along the existing railroads, as it would there was really no other way to send the forces and weapons of that size that far that fast. Because, I mean, you got to remember, like, a lot of people are still, like, using horses at this time. Cars are pretty much in their infancy. And, you know, planes at this point can carry people, but, like, pretty much nothing else. Yeah, all, all basically, are like, all the big transports came on boats and stuff. Or trains. Yeah, so. yeah, and if uh, like if they if they had decided to do like an invasion of France from boat, like you'd have to put your like Germany would have to put their soldiers on the boats, get it through the English Channel and the North Sea, and then land in France without either the United Kingdom or France's navy like sinking them in route so so yeah they really didn't have any other options for this plan to work so they fought for about 11 days and captured the city on august 11th or sorry august 15th using massive artillery cannons to blast the city into submission these artillery cannons were, at the time, the largest land cannons ever produced. One was 420 millimeters, or 16.5 inches in diameter. Like, oh, that's all the way around? Yeah. I'm trying to think. That... Or, no, no, um, I'm pretty sure it's diameter, not circumference, so... It's like a foot and a half wide... Okay. ...shells. And all the way up, and then pointy... Not a foot and a half, like a foot and a third. But yeah, uh, some big-ass cannons. Yeah, for that time. It's bigger than yeah. like anything else that, like you said, anything else that they had. So it's like getting hit with many little nukes that you've never seen. Yeah, so um, the other one was like 12 inches, which wasn't quite as big as the biggest one at the time, which I believe was, I think Britain had one that was 13 and a half. But that was, like, attached to a boat or a ship. Whereas this was on land. Yeah. 
So, yeah, it, it's a very, very big cannon. Because of that, they were just able to, like, shell the shit out of the city with essentially never-before-seen capabilities and did a lot of damage to it. The German forces took a hard line from the first day that they would accept no resistance, fearing their plan would be undone by snipers and resistance fighters. So when they took Liege, they killed civilians and uh, at least one Belgian priest, accusing them of encouraging or participating in resistance activities. They killed 5,521 civilians during their advance through Belgium. Jeez. Yeah. Moltke wrote to the Austrian chief of staff, like his counterpart from the Alliance, and said, quote, Our advance in Belgium is certainly brutal, but we are fighting for our lives, and all who get in the way must take the consequences. Obviously, this led to a lot of condemnation from the rest of Europe once they heard about it, and those that actually were part of the Belgian resistance were seen as heroes for fighting against these you know, bloodthirsty invaders. Like, they're, they're killing civilians and even priests, which, you know, at the time had a lot more respect than they do now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's bad to kill civilians regardless at any time. Like, it's just... It's not like... There's rules of war, like etiquette of war and stuff. But we've started to go away from that. Or... Or how... Or did we used to not have it, and then they we started to gain it more? I don't know. Regard war is awful. Yeah, and there's always going to be civilian casualties. Like it's just an inevitability. But this was like targeted specifically killing civilians. Yeah, which again happens in every war, but but it's very useful in propaganda because you can say, look, they're killing civilians. They're doing. I mean, like, at this point, war crimes wasn't really a thing yet, so... But, like, still, it was a rallying cry of, like, look at what they're doing. Germany continued to advance through Belgium through the rest of August fairly quickly, despite Belgium resistance, blowing up rail tracks, and offering other op opposition where they could. But this push focused on speed to be effective was very taxing on the supply lines, especially with Belgium resistance trying to slow them down, wear them out, or demoralize them in any way they could. But yeah, that this is where a lot of countries falter. They push too hard and too fast and like just can't keep track of their supply line enough that like it doesn't meet resistance. They just they want to get the war over quick. They want to win in one vast foul swoop, so Yeah. So by September, German forces were pushing far into French territory, passing roughly 120 miles of French territory with their eyes set on Paris. On September 6th, roughly 30 miles northeast of Paris, the French 6th Army, under command of General Michel Joseph Minori in the field, and General Joseph Simon Gallieni, or Gallieni who was... Paris's general. So, like, he was leading things from Paris, but on the ground was uh, Minori. The French 6th Army attacked the right flank of the German army and began a, the decisive first battle of the Marne. The Marne is a river in France. 
the German First Army was led by General Alexander von Kluck, and he had disobeyed orders to double back and support General Karl von Bülow, who led the Second Army, leaving them open to attack by the French Six. So they saw that there was this, like, I think the First Army was chasing a retreating France, and, like, they kept pushing ahead, whereas uh, Mulkey was like, hey, you need to get back and defend the Second Army just to make sure they, like, you don't get separated. But they did get separated, and this opened the attack for the fr- the French Sixth Army. You gotta stay. 100... You gotta stay in formation and stay with your team. Communicate and listen, because yeah. you know when you get put out of pulled out of place, they kill you, and then you leave an open gap, and then they take that gap, just like video games. A hundred fifty thousand soldiers opened a thirty mile gap between Cluck's First Army and Bulow's Second. This gap gave enough room for the French Fifth Army led by General Louis Franchette d'Esprit, with divisions of the British Expeditionary Force to fill that gap and attack the German Second Army. So this attack and confusion led to fierce fighting from both sides until, exhausted and undersupplied, the German army was forced to retreat on September 9th. So three days of just, like, intense fighting. Uh, finally, the Germans pulled back. They were pushed back towards the... Uh, I should have looked this up. The Asni River, or Eisne? Another river in France. And this is where they would entrench themselves in positions that would last all the way through 1918. You know, it's French. It's probably like the Aisne River or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know much French. Yeah, I don't either. All I know is Mbappe plays for French or France, and... They're, they're, he's a good soccer player. So the Schlieffen plan had failed. Some would argue that it was never going to succeed, like no matter how well disciplined the German army was. Because it's just, it's it's asking a lot, and Germany just didn't have the mobility to probably, or the manpower to both encircle France and keep the fighting on the border. In any case, this was now a war on two fronts, which Germany had feared, and both sides dug in, resigned to the fact that despite what everyone thought, this would not be a quick or easy war for either side. Like, pretty much everyone on both sides thought, like, well, like, this'll be a quick war. Some borders might change a little bit, like, you know, we'll be home by Christmas. Yeah. Obviously, in hindsight, that didn't happen. No, they were there for years. Yeah. So for the next uh, few months, the war would continue to plod into stalemates or, you know, some victories. But for the most part, it, like, once once these clashes happened... uh Everyone basically just entrenched themselves and aggressive pushes gave way to grueling trench warfare. Yeah, they were like, let's dig holes. They can't shoot us down here. Yeah, so life on the battlefield was tough and brutal, but trench warfare was ultimately slow, grueling, and miserable. 
Both sides constructed elaborate systems of trenches, berms, dugouts, and tunnels in an attempt to keep their side safe and advance upon the enemy. Unlike most of the tech associated with World War I, like the airplane, gas attacks, the uh, tank, machine guns, or submarines, trench warfare had been in use in some form or fashion since at least the ancient Romans. And trench warfare was particularly brutal. The only way to make progress besides trying to snipe or bomb every enemy until nothing remained was to charge at these heavily fortified structures across what was called no man's land. This area between two opposing trenches was often littered with barbed wire, razor wire, uh, mines, craters, and the corpses of those who had not survived the last push. So these obstacles would ensnare, trap, or otherwise slow the advancing party, which was when they would be in the crosshairs of snipers, rifle lines, and machine gun nests, meaning any advance was a foray into almost certain death. It's like a more advanced style of how they used to fight the like Revolutionary War, where they just stood out in fields and shot each other. Yeah, it made it a lot harder for the aggressing side to actually make progress. So the main counters to this would be artillery bombardments, gas attacks, or later on airplane and tank attacks that would force the defenders to take cover long enough for attackers to get a head start and possibly cross no man's land, where they would then be faced with close quarters trench combat of guns, bayonets, blades, grenades, and bare fists. Combat was devastating, but the grueling downtime in trenches could be just as miserable. Supplies were not always on time or fully stocked, meaning food and medicine could quickly become scarce, and venturing out was very often a death sentence. Most of the time, the only thing to look at was the bare dirt walls, wood planks, and the sky, because anyone too curious to poke their head over and peek at the other side could easily become the prey of an eager sniper. Sounds awful. Just, just yeah. awful. The weather was often just as menacing as the enemy, as the trenches were prone to flood and the bare dirt walls were rarely adequate protection from stinging rain, blistering winds of winter, or boiling heats of summer. The rain and cold caused problems as warm, dry clothes were often hard to come by or impossible to come by, which led to frostbite, hypothermia, and trench foot, which could easily go unnoticed at first and untreated and then would lead to rot or loss of limbs. The exposure and supply issues also led to all kinds of diseases, as the rot of dead bodies, attacks by merciless vermin or bugs, and the lack of hygienic conditions or medical equipment caused a whole host of health problems. Like, it, it sounds just absolutely miserable. I mean, yeah, it's war and you're in trenches and... There's literally nothing that you can do. It's, uh, I mean, even when you watch the movies, it looks miserable. It doesn't yeah. look, it doesn't look like a good time. Yeah, the other problem with downtime during trench warfare is it's insufferably boring. Uh, like I said, there's nothing to look at unless you want to risk getting your head taken off. Yeah, there's there's yeah. Not, yeah there's not much that you can do, especially if you're like an infantry person, because you're not sitting there planning or anything. You're just sitting in the trench, and waiting. Yeah, like it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Just awful. E- either waiting for the other side to attack or waiting until you're told to attack. So the average distance between these 
enemy trenches was typically like 200 to 400 yards apart, but some were far closer. When the trenches were close enough and the artillery wasn't busy blasting, the battlefield could become eerily quiet, letting both sides hear the other's chatter, taunts, or songs. The last major battle had been the first battle of Ypres. It was, uh, or Ypres. It was also known as the Race to the Sea, as both sides dug trenches north to the English Channel, trying to keep or gain ground that controlled the ports and allowed for access to the Channel and the North Sea. The battle had ended in November of 1914, with both sides digging their trenches and preparing for the long fight. So with both sides dug in and winter weather inhibiting more aggressive campaigns, the war dulled to daily life in the trenches, fortifying their positions and guard duty. Like, there were still battles, but there was no major offensives between November and late January, so it was just a lot of downtime. With all that free time and within shouting distance of each other, fraternization became pretty common. A lot of German troops spoke English or French, and quite a few had lived or gone to school in England, particularly London, prior to being called home for the war. Some of them had sweethearts or friends still in London, and a lot of them were very interested in updates on English football leagues or other aspects of life they left behind. This was especially true in places that hadn't seen heavy combat or were not a strategic position, so like there wasn't a lot of risk for like a major offensive there. Yeah. So so like they would just call out at the enemy side like, "Hey, who won the game?" you know? That would be that's just so like off like you don't have to be there, but you have to be there. They're like, "Oh, we love like Britain and London and like the stuff like that that's in there we're from there we've lived there or our girls there but we have to fight you guys just because you know it's our country yeah music was also a common uniting factor units would often sing songs in the evening to pass the time and keep morale up sometimes they would also sing to entertain or taunt the up the opposing side sometimes they this fraternization was enough that one side could broker an informal ceasefire with the other, not forever, but agreements to not fire during tea time or during wash time. This was typically agreed upon between soldiers and not commanding officers, who were often opposed to such familiarities. According to uh, Tony Ashworth in his book Trench Warfare 1914-1918, to this was a live-and-let system. These tacit agreements, quote, gave soldiers some control over the conditions of their lives. As Christmas neared, these fraternizations became common in some areas. Then on Christmas Eve, the British heard a familiar song on the breeze. The Germans had begun singing their vision of Silent Night, Holy Night. Yeah, Silent Night. Yeah. Yeah. I know the song. Um, yeah, so... Like, even those that didn't speak German could recognize the tune. Not to be outdone, the British forces responded with their English version. Both sides shouted out Christmas greeting and good-natured taunts to each other. The Germans that also placed candles on the edges of their trenches or on makeshift Christmas trees. This led to more carols. And then, at various pockets of the front lines... German and British soldiers risked sniper fire or surprise attacks to cross no man's land not as combatants but as well-wishers. They risked not only enemy fire but charges of desertion or treason for this kind of informal pleasantry with the enemy. That'd be terrifying, to be honest. 
I bet some of them are just like, man, we just want this to be over. If I die, I die. At least it'll be done. <laughs> yeah. So they met in no man's land and uh, exchanged greetings. Uh, some of them engaged, exchanged gifts. Nothing fancy, but just what they had on hand, like tobacco, alcohol, buttons, and hats. One soldier, Bruce Barron's father, wrote, quote, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy of some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and, with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civilian life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch, who was patiently kneeling on the ground while the automatic clippers crept along the back of his neck. You know how, like, you know how wild that would be? You were just, like, killing them and, like, in war and stuff, and, like, like, you come over and cut somebody's hair. Like, you cut the enemy's hair. Yeah. But it kind of sh- that also kind of shows how like kind of dumb our first world the first world war was like as well like yeah none of them like I mean they're probably bad people and stuff but it's not like the second world war where you kind of knew like the bad bad stuff was going on and stuff and you weren't going to let some of those things slide so like there's no way that you could do stuff like that yeah, th- this was just a war for territory, and, like, the average soldier isn't going to gain any of that land, like, after the war's over or anything, like... Yeah, they're just it's pawns. Just, it, it, it's just a fucking dick-measuring contest by the various kings, most of which were fucking cousins. It's, yeah. That uh, sucks for them, though. Like, you know... You not necessarily made friends, but you kind of made acquaintances with them, and then like you know, in a couple of days or months, you're probably going to fight them, or they're going to be dead, or stuff like that will happen. Yeah. So I mean, no two areas that did this were exactly the same, but singing, smoking, and souvenir exchanges were common activities. One of the more extraordinary events that occurred was football matches, allegedly. It's still widely disputed about how organized or real such events actually were, but there is recurring claims that at some level, a football match was played between the two sides. I could on it. I could see. I could see that happening. Football is very popular um, over there, and also like, as long as you guys set distinctive rules and be like, hey. Do not bring any guns, weapons, or anything. You have, like, designated people to, like, pat them down to make sure nothing happens. So even if they get in a fight or something, they're not going to be able to, like, just instantly kill each other. You know, it's just a friendly that they're playing. Yeah. um, With the state of the ground and the availability of anything even resembling a football, like, it's kind of hard to say how legitimate this was. Uh, more than likely, it was just a few guys kicking around a tin or some other like stand-in for a ball. But even with a real ball, the chances of this being anything re- resembling an organized game is remote. But it is 
plausible. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be like 11 on 11, like full field, two goals, you know, them like killing it. Yeah, like at most it was probably like just them like pointing to two like like posts sticking out of the ground. It's like, all right, that's your goal. Ours is this over here. And just like, you know, five or six guys just kicking around a ball and like. Yeah, they're like, the out of bounds is our dead friend Roy over there. Uh, over there's your guys is like Jero or something. You know, it's just like we, we play in between those bounds. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's uh, a, a couple of heads over there, some bob wire. So this is where we're staying. There is, or one thing I forgot to write in here is that like these Christmas truces were often uh, times where both sides would collect their dead and bury them or send them off to be buried. Sometimes officers joined in the festivities, like smoking or having a drink, but more often than not, the officers looked on disapprovingly, but unwilling or unable to discipline all involved. I mean, like I said, a hundred thousand people from Germany, from both the German and British slash French side, took part in this ceasefire. Like, and this was all unorganized. It was just like various spots along the front that, you know, recognized that like this was a good chance to not have to fight people on Christmas. Yeah. And like if the officers did something, you, one, you risk like losing so many like, uh, soldiers because they, you can, by them doing this, you can already tell they're like, man, they really do not want to be here. So if I do something, I'm really going to make morale even more low. That could end up getting me killed or end up making these guys just be like, oh, let's, let's kind of leave. Honestly, most of them could have left at that time and been like, oh, yeah, you know, I was lost at war. <laughs> so the Eastern Front also had some small Christmas ceasefires, but it wasn't nearly the number of the Western Front. Another soldier... Just because that's Russia over there and they're assholes. They don't care about Christmas. They... Yeah, Christmas wasn't as popular as we discussed last week, and there was a little bit more of a separation because Russia had the Eastern Orthodox religion, whereas Germany had, like, some of the Western ones and some of the Eastern ones. So another soldier, Henry Williamson, a private of only 19 years at the time, wrote to his mother of the experience. Quote, Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Besides me is, beside me is a coke fire, opposing me a dugout with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trenches, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say, but wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Haha, you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh dear, no. From a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands on the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day, Xmas Day, and as I write... Marvelous, isn't it? That's a real letter? Yeah. So in some places, these ceasefires only lasted the night, others lasted through Christmas Day, and some extended this truce all the way through the New Year. 
But even still, while their portion of the front was quiet and peaceful, the deep, resonating booms of artillery fire in the distance reminded them that this was not the end of the war, and soon they would have to meet these newfound acquaintances in battle once more. There's no telling who they would see alive again in peace, or at the end of their rifle, or stepping over their body as they advanced to the next objective. Some officers accepted the friendly uh, meeting as a moment of levity for the boys trapped in a hellish assignment, but others were staunchly against it. General Sir Horace Smith Dorian issued orders forbidding friendly communication with the Germans, and a young corporal of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry named Adolf Hitler also voiced his disapproval of such interactions. I bet he would. Yeah, I mean, from a military perspective, it makes sense to be against it. You're asking these young men, mostly teenagers or in their early 20s, to run through gas, mines, and a hail of bullets just to kill other young men. And for what? So one king gets a little more land and bragging rights? Yeah, and it's also (coughs) going to make, like, your enemy feel more human to you. So it's going to be a lot harder to be able to, like, kill them and do what needs to be done. But I mean, yeah. like, I just feel I I feel bad for like all of the uh, people who had to like be involved in like any of our wars, any any war. Like, it's so detrimental to like your mental health and just it. It's so hard to be out there in general. Like, there's nothing like that that we'll ever experience. Like the both the world wars, even if you're in the military now and you go to war, it's totally different than either of, like, our world wars. Because it, like, it, it's just wild with how much, how different things were and how, like, I don't know. It's just awful. And I feel bad for that we had to put people through that. Yeah. I mean, like, you can certainly experience just as horrible things nowadays, but it is a different experience from... Yeah. something like this it's very it's very unique it's the same <clears> thing like the, all the guys who went to vietnam like they'll never like dude that's wild like that shit what they did over there in general both sides will probably never experience anything like that again either so like e- yeah. e- each person's stuff is uniquely different and it uniquely messes you up like in a totally different way, like just because different wars and different experiences of war is different. Like, still, the following Christmas of 1915 had some more ceasefires, but they were far rarer than the year before. And by 1916, the war had become too bitter, too grueling, and too long, and the tradition of Christmas truce died out. Over the course of the war, somewhere between 15 and 22 million lives would be lost, both civilians and combatants alike. Makes it pretty hard to celebrate with the quote-unquote other side with numbers like that. Yeah, and like you're just losing the Christmas spirit and you're like your happiness inside anyway. Like yeah. oh, The more time you spend out there, the more you hate the other side, the more you're trying to find reasons to like fight and just want to be done with it so yeah like i mean you why would any like you're you've been out there for like two three i guess three years at that point why would you be like oh i want to celebrate christmas i want to have some happiness in my life because you haven't seen or felt any type of happiness in three years so you're not going to be able to like bring that back out of you yeah uh 
it also makes me wonder about, you know, the what ifs. I know it's kind of a pointless exercise to question what history could have been as opposed to what it actually is, but a hundred thousand people setting down their arms and to take a break from fighting and trust the others to do the same. Imagine if they had expanded on that, like if they had set down their arms for good and collectively went home and told their rulers, like, we won't fight your wars anymore. Or better yet, if they had dragged their rulers, who, like I said, were mostly cousins, back to the battlefield and dug a little Thunderdome and made them fight amongst themselves. You know, like uh, like Brad Pitt's Achilles from Troy, uh, where he, def- after he defeats Boagrius, just like, imagine a king who fights his own battles. Wouldn't that be a sight? It would be a lot better. Right? But that's the thing. Like, soldiers and the people who fight the battles truly have the real power. If all of them were just like, we're not fighting anymore, what are, what are like, the like government powers, like the higher-ups and stuff going to do? Oh, they might launch, try to just launch some bombs and stuff. But if you don't put all of those, if, like, your soldiers aren't putting those bombs or anything, like, in places to be shot, then they, they won't have, they can't do anything. But that is, yeah. that's a utopia, and we have... People who blindly follow rules for no reason, rather than, like, using their own judgment. Yeah. Tens of millions of lives lost just to broaden borders. It's a mistake we never learned from. Yeah, broaden borders, like, any at this point in life, even, like, then, like... Even back way when, I just, I feel like it's totally pointless. But it goes back to, like, the thing that I was talking about, like uh last week is that we're all humans and that like everybody should have access to like the basic things and it shouldn't matter like we're in like such a modern era and stuff that fighting over little bits of land and stuff shouldn't matter because like the money and like the trading and stuff the only significance that comes out of it is what we put significance into it like it doesn't matter if we have that land or don't like they like technically they don't actually have to have any power over us if we don't allow them to but uh, that that can uh, yeah have you ever heard of a song called the green fields of france uh i'm not sure maybe if i heard the words it's been it's it's been performed by like various different singers and artists uh the version i'm most familiar with is uh i believe the dropkick murphy's version it's a song about a traveler pausing to rest at the gravestone of a 19-year-old who died in World War One. I. I always think about it when I think about World War One because it kind of sums it up. Some of the lyrics are, The sun now it shines on the green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze that makes the red poppies dance. And look how the sun shines from under the clouds. There's no gas, no barbed wire, and no guns firing now. But here in this graveyard, it's still no man's land. The countless white crosses stand mute in the sand to man's blind indifference to his fellow man, to a whole generation that were butchered and damned. Well, young Willie McBride, I can't help wonder why. Do those that lie here know why they died? And did they believe when they answered the call? That Did they really believe that this war would end war? Well, the sorrow, the suffering, the glory, the pain... The killing, the dying, was all done in vain. For young Willie McBride, it all happened again. And again. And again. And again. And again. 
So I think that's important to note, but like what what an amazing thing that for at least one night everyone collective or not everyone, but like a hundred thousand people collectively put down their arms and were able to just like find some levity in the moment. They were able to like put aside their differences or put aside the differences of their nations and just meet their fellow man. Well, that's why holidays and like kindness and everything is so important. Like it can bring people together and give you something to hope and wish for. I don't know. It's just, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I know what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how to like put it into words. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I would call this legitimately a Christmas miracle, you know? Yeah. It, it just shows um, how much, like, humans need things like that for us to, like, fully function. Otherwise, we would just be mad people who just went around and kill, killed everybody and didn't care about anyone. Yeah. But anyways, that's all I got. Christmas Eve. is a great time. Yeah. So, next week... Uh, we're going to be looking at what is argued both is and is not a Christmas movie. We're going to be looking at Die Hard. Woo! Yeah, so. It's a great movie. Got anything else before we go? No, that's all I got. I'm excited. Yeah. You brought a little Christmas miracle to the the minds of the people while Christmas is coming up, and then we're going to get into some holiday movie yeah and uh i mean it's just uh, just, you know all i can say is finally is like if you're out there this holiday season and you see somebody in need and you know or their kids are acting up or something like that's going on like remember that like you can always let it go and be like okay let me have happiness and you know, lay down my arms in this time and help and be there for somebody regardless of, like, how you feel about them. And you may, you know, maybe it'll turn out to be your own little Christmas miracle that will inadvertently change your whole life and help you, you know, later on. Thanks for listening, guys. You can follow us on Twitter at what underscore we underscore consume and on Instagram at what we consume podcast. And I am on Twitter at King Hagathor. Other than that, bye bye.